For anyone who wasn't here last week and those that were here, uh, we took some time to try to wrestle with the first eight verses of Romans chapter 13. And I want us to continue to do that today. Maybe it'd be more accurate to say that's what's still on my heart. It's not so much what I want, but what I have continued to be burdened with this week and continued to feel the need to explore and prayerfully consider. So let's read this passage again and then we could call this part two, but it may just be a different facet or different angle of the same thing that we're trying to understand. Romans chapter 13, I'll just read, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he heareth, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause you pay tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Let's turn back to Romans 12 and read a little bit of this as we go into this message today. I think it will help us understand. Let love be without, this is the verse uh, 9, Romans 12, 9. Let love be without dissimulation, or let love be genuine. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing always in prayer or instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Listen to this one. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Paul was teaching right before we got into Romans 13, which we talked about last week, and we're continuing to try to talk about with the Lord's help. But I want us to realize the context of this uh, chapter is in the middle of this letter that he's writing to a particular group of people who are part of different congregations in a particular region of the world who uh, have a particular government in place and particular situations they're dealing with. This is real solutions to real problems that they face. 
And it's interesting to me how many people jump to this sort of obscure part of Romans 13 and, and leap to that and basically say you have to do whatever the government says and miss out on love is the fulfilling of the law. <laughs> There's times that earthly governments, we sort of talked about this last week, make laws that are the opposite of Christian love. And they expect you to do that because they said so, but Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law. In this 12th chapter, he says, let love be genuine. And King James says, without dissimulation. That means no, no fakeness. It means real. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember as we continue in this message and in any Sunday, any service, any time we try to serve the Lord, the foundation of everything we do has to be authentic love. Pretend love doesn't do any good. Posturing, being nice from like, I'm just expected to do this. Pretending to care. It doesn't do any good. I sometimes wonder if we'd be better off just being honest. Instead of like putting on airs. There's times that I don't know how to help people. I mentioned to you my friend and business partner lost his dad. And he called me and told me about an hour after it happened. And this is, I've never seen him cry. We got off the phone crying and it broke my heart. And I sat there and cried. And my heart was heavy. And I tried to pray for him. And I thought, I wish there was something I could do. And I said, I don't know what I could do. So I just got a little card and wrote a note that said, What happened? When you told me this, I just got off the phone and cried. I love you. I'm praying for you. And you know what? That meant a lot to him because it was real. Not because I did something special. This is part of what Paul's talking about when he says, let love be without dissimulation, without fakeness, without any kind of hint of pretendness. Hopefully we love each other enough that we're broken when our brother or sister is broken. That we're moved when they're moved. That we're upset when they're upset. That, that we actually care. And there's times, we know this, that the world is, it causes us to be sort of hard or have a shell. It's hard to care all the time. But when we get those shells, I pray that God would soften us and break it. Because everything we're doing, love is the foundation. We don't win people with arguments, we win them with love. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have an opinion. It doesn't mean we shouldn't debate. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know truth. That's why we're talking about this message. Be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're supposed to be able to stand for the truth, know why we believe what we do, but it all has to be motivated by love. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Prayerfully, with the Lord's help, I'm reminding us of something we should practice. He continues in the 12th chapter, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Uh, paraphrasing other scriptures, we could say, bind up the brokenhearted. Be moved by the suffering of those around us. These brothers and sisters are the attributes of the people of God. When I preach about us being bold and a desire for the Lord to raise up warriors. I mean that with all my heart, and I'm not backing up from it. 
But at the same time, we're supposed to be moved by those who weep. We're supposed to care about those who are mourning. We're supposed to be bear the sufferings of those around us. Jesus, who is the best example of anything we could ever hope to accomplish, do, or be, says he looked on the multitudes and his heart was moved with compassion. How many times do we look at the masses around us? I'll be honest, a lot of times I feel the exact opposite of that. I'm not moved with compassion a lot of the times when I look at the masses around me. I'm moved to anger, frustration, annoyance. Right? If we're honest. And I think it'd be better to admit that to ourselves and then let God deal with us than pretend we care about people we don't care about. Let's be honest. I want to be in a place, and there have been times that I felt that way where my heart was moved with compassion. I want God to soften me and bring me to that point more and more often. But He has to do it. It may seem like this, this message that I'm starting with today is the opposite of what I tried to preach last week. And I want you to know, I'm not simply trying to counterbalance a seemingly hard truth from last week. I preach a mean message last week and a nice message this week. That's not what I'm trying to do. It's not that we should stand and then try to counterbalance it by being nice. And that's what I see people do a lot of times. They'll have an opinion that isn't popular in our culture and then they feel the need to apologize for it because we've been trained that if you're Christian, you should be nice to people and by being nice, you shouldn't make them uncomfortable. That's why I called this message wrestling with Romans 13. Because we gotta, there's, there's many facets. We have to figure out why we should take a stand, when we should take a stand, and what it's going to cost. Because it will. And there will be people that, that misunderstand. We stand, and I hope this is getting across, not to be right. We stand because of love. It's not in contradiction or opposition to love. The reason we try to understand truth and then stand for truth is because of love. That's why truth matters. The more we understand God and His truth, the more we will grow to understand the love of God and the more we'll love people. Real love comes from God. And the more we know Him and what He thinks about things, the more we'll have real love. There's a scripture that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you understand what that means? It means somebody who really loves you, loves you enough to wound you when necessary, to hurt you when necessary, to hurt your feelings when necessary. That's what real love, that's necessary sometimes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend is going to love you enough at times to be honest, even if you don't want to hear it. And I guess the rest of our lives we're going to be fighting this false cultural tide that to be a Christian, you have to be nice and never make anybody uncomfortable. That's not at all how Jesus Christ, who started Christianity, lived. So what is love actually? What's love in action? Let me give you an example. I talk about this sometime. If you, if you knew the cure, if you knew somebody who was dying, and you knew there was a cure... 
Would you be more concerned about being nice and just making them feel comfortable, or would you be more concerned about telling them about the cure? Wouldn't we? I mean, if we, if we cared about someone, and they were about to die, and we could give them a cure, but it meant hurting their feelings, would you hurt their feelings? So they would live. And this is a real question. It's not rhetorical. I mean, I'm actually asking us. Do you care more about somebody's opinion of you or do you care more about the truth that can actually help them? And this is something I wrestle with. I don't like people to be mad at me. I don't like people to think I'm mean or, or too bold or arrogant. I don't like any of those things. But the truth is more important than how I feel. True love in that kind of situation would say, I want you to live. I want you to live. I want you to live more than whether you like me or not. If you die liking me, it's over. If you live, we can work on whether you like me later. And I think if we could approach the world with truth like that, we'd be closer to what the Lord intended than this just being nice to people all the time, never making them uncomfortable. That's why it matters what we believe and how we live. And consensus of opinion is not the path to truth. Consensus of opinion is not the path to truth. We live in a culture of... It's like the cult of the experts. Everybody bows down to different experts in different fields and, I, and we, they don't ever step back to say how those people get to be experts. And I'm not discounting everything experts say, but consensus of opinion doesn't lead to truth automatically. What if they're all wrong? As has happened in history over and over and over. The people who killed Jesus, I said this before, were the most religiously trained people in the history of Judaism. They knew more about the law and Jewish customs and the teachings of the prophets than anybody who ever lived, and they killed the Messiah. Just because everybody thinks something doesn't mean it's right. Just because most professing Christians think Romans 13 means you should do whatever the government says no matter what doesn't mean they're right. And I, I pray that with the Lord's help, we're, we're understanding that. I'll say it again. It's not like last week I preached a mean message and today I want to preach a nice message. No, last week I tried with the Lord's help to preach the truth. And today I'm trying with the Lord's help to preach the truth. It's just different facets of the same thing. It matters what we believe, but it also matters how we feel toward people. You can realize somebody's wrong and still love them. It's the truth that matters. It's the truth that sets you free. I have to be more concerned, and this should be true of God's children in general, I have to be more concerned with speaking the truth than whether you like what I'm saying. And brothers and sisters, we need to start practicing that as people of God. Churches. I'm talking about... Old-time Baptist churches have turned into little groups where they try to make everybody feel okay. 
and, and iron out wrinkles and don't hurt anybody's feelings and don't offend anybody. That's not the point of church. We have to be more concerned with the truth than how people feel. And that's why it's necessary to understand scriptures like Romans 13 and proper submission to authority and what authority is and what restrictions it's appropriate to submit ourselves to and when. And I guess if I summed all that up, I would say, simply put, love should compel us to be truthful. Let love be genuine. Let love be without dissimulation. If we really love, I mean, if it's real love, we'll be truthful. I want to look at a couple verses in Ephesians. He says, Paul says, walk in love. That's the first verse, walk in love. And then you read through the chapter, he talks about all the things we should avoid, all the types of sins we shouldn't partake in. And then later in the chapter, he says, try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Part of walking in love, here's the point I'm making with that, part of walking in love, brothers and sisters, is figuring out what God wants. Figuring out what's pleasing to Him. Not just making this person feel better. And I'm not trying to be mean. But a preacher's job is not to make you feel better. Our job is to proclaim truth. So, with all that in mind, let's kind of step back and take a, a big picture view down at what we're talking about. And this, I know we get used to certain types of sermons or preaching or you know, we like um, exciting, motivational, like revival type stuff. This, this message, we're going to continue to wrestle with truth. And so I want to ask you to, like, to, to, to pay attention and, and to engage and to, to actually think about the things that I'm talking about and figure out if what I'm saying is actually right. I mean, I'm serious. I'm a man. And I'm doing my best to preach what God has given me, but I want you to wrestle with these things and figure out what it means for you. So, when we begin down a path toward truth, when we're trying to understand truth, we are embarking on a dangerous journey. I'll say it again. When you begin down a path toward truth, you're embarking on a dangerous journey. Let me tell you why. The first reason is we must, and this overwhelms me, we must recognize that we'll be responsible. Once you know the right thing to do, ignorance is no longer an excuse. I'll give you an example of that for me personally. Now that I know a lot of things that are being taught, in grade school and elementary school, I can't just blindly send my daughter there. I can't unknow the agenda that's being pushed. I can't unknow the worldview that's being conditioned to those children. I'm now responsible. As we understand and discern and figure out through God's help more truth, we are responsible. I guess that's one reason when I preach. I preach so... I don't know how to describe it. You can decide your own conclusions. But however I preach, 
I was going to tell this wife because I don't know how. <laughs> they, they, my wife and daughter, would, when she's getting ready to go to sleep, listen to my best friend's sermons, not mine. <laughs> because mine are too intense. Too, she said, you'll be like quiet and then you're like, he cut off his head. <laughs> Why? Because this, like, truth is a big deal. And I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about me. One reason I preach with that much intensity and seriousness and passion is because I have to answer for what I'm telling you. And if I can describe it with the Lord's help the best I can, then your blood is off my hands and on yours. That sounds like a crass waste, but really... If I can preach as purely as possible with God's help, I'm not responsible for what you do with it. You are. If I hold back because I don't want to hurt your feelings, if I step back because I don't want to be too loud or harsh or something, then maybe I have to answer for not being direct enough. That's why I try to preach the way I do. There's a responsibility to knowing truth. And once you know the right thing to do, if you choose not to do it, Let's be clear. If you choose not to do the right thing, it's sin. Period. Once you understand truth, you're responsible for how it affects your life and your actions. That's why it's so necessary that we wrestle with seemingly complex truths like we find in Romans 13. It would be so much easier to just read this passage and say, yep, that's what it means. I just do whatever they tell me no matter what. That's a whole lot easier than figuring out what it actually means in the context of my life. It's a lot easier. I heard Brother Jerry Reynolds say this when I was in college. We were still wearing those WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? And he said in just the most matter-of-fact, just characteristic Brother Reynolds way, he said, if you, if you want to wear a bracelet that means something, it would, should say WWJH. MD, what would Jesus have me do? We already know what Jesus did. We already know what he would do. It's a lot easier to ask that than it is, what would Jesus have me do? And that's why we'd have to wrestle with this. The first reason to restate it is the reason this path is dangerous, the reason the journey toward truth is dangerous is because we're responsible. The second reason is It's much easier, I alluded to this a minute ago, it's much easier to adopt a hardline or legalistic position than it is to be sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit and attentive to His revealed truth. It's much easier to just say, this is how it is, boom, no matter what. I've preached about this and written about it. Our churches handle the issue of divorce in that way. Instead of being sensitive to the situation, the cause, the circumstances, the person, it's all just swept under this thing of divorce is evil, the end. It's much easier to do that. It's much easier to just write people off and say, you're in this category, you're over here, you're a second-rate citizen. That's easier than wrestling with the actual circumstances of a specific event and person as it relates to God's people. It'd be a lot easier to read Romans 13 and say, 
oh, that means do whatever the government says no matter what. It, wouldn't that, it'd be a lot more simple. Today they say wear a mask. Tomorrow they say get a shot. The next day they say don't go to church. The next day they say, you know they're doing this in uh, Australia. You can't go more than a certain distance from your house. Be really simple. I'm black and white. Okay, whatever they tell me, I'm just going to do it. But is that actually true? Is it what God wants from us? It's much easier to have a hard line or legalistic approach than to actually figure out what the Lord wants. I want to wrestle with, well, again, I say I want to. I don't want to. I feel like I need to. I'm burdened to. To help us understand what I'm talking about, let's talk about the idea of murder versus killing. It's easy to read the commandments and say, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Make it this hard line, black and white, no matter what thing. No matter what, never. Okay. But we're also called by God to protect the innocent. There's a reason when you look at that passage in Hebrew, it's not talking about killing and self-defense. It's talking about premeditated murder. There's a difference. And I hope that we are awake enough to know that there's a difference. If I am on the way to work and I get in road rage and I fume and steam and I'm mad the whole way there and when I get there the person is there and I kill them, that's bad. That's murder. That's what we're commanded not to do. If I'm at home minding my own business and somebody breaks in and tries to kidnap my daughter and there is no other way to prevent it other than taking their life, I'm going to. Do you see the difference? It's much easier to just say don't kill than it is to figure out what am I supposed to do right now in this moment? Don't murder is not the same thing as don't kill. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, where we get a lot of our doctrine from, who taught things like we use in ordination services, about marriage, divorce, and alcohol, all this kind of stuff, he also said to the people, such were some of you. These people who comprised the first churches of Jesus Christ had been sinners, many of them. I think the same is true of us, unless we deceive ourselves. We've been sinners. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm still a sinner. That God, by His grace, continues to work with and help. I'm not trying to sin, I'm not doing bad things over and over on purpose as a lifestyle, but I still sin. It'd be much easier to have a legalistic approach. We can't have anybody who ever did this, 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 or this in a church office. But such were some of you. I could spend a whole lot of time on that, but we'll move on. The third reason traveling down the path toward truth is dangerous, and this one is going to get to our hearts. We have to beware of pride. We have to beware of self-justification. We have to beware of lifting ourselves up. Consider this. If we are um, expressly trying to understand truth, that means that there is truth. That there is the right. 
There is truth. And if we're trying to understand it, that means there's a right thing to believe. If truth exists, then there's right and there's wrong. But a desire to know truth or to know the right thing can quickly settle into satisfaction with being right. Do you understand the difference? I had a wise old man tell me, he was talking about marriage, but he said you can be right or you can be happy. You can't be both. (laughs) I'm not saying that as the gospel, but I'm saying like there's some truth to it. There are times that my wife and I disagree with each other and we're both, we're both pretty stubborn. And there's times one of us has got to back off or neither one of us are going to be happy. He said you could be right or you can be happy. And the reason I'm bringing up that analogy is sometimes as we're seeking to understand truth, we can lose sight of actually finding truth like out there, off in the distance, our eyes on Jesus... And some truth we've discovered, we can start to think we're right. And that's a dangerous position to be in. Feeling justified in being right can completely replace the hunger for truth altogether. Do you believe that? Do you, do you, do you think that's right? Is it true? What I'm saying? I believe it is. I've been wrestling with this. I think we can try to understand truth. We can start out on the right path. And next thing you know, we're just happy we're right. I saw a whole lot of that in the last year and a half with this whole debate surrounding COVID. I mean, nastiness, meanness, things that should never be said to people. Because one side thinks they're right and the other side thinks they're right. But what's true? That's what we have to wrestle with. Be careful, brothers and sisters, not just in the context of this message, but in our whole lives. Don't be satisfied with just being right. Because if you get too satisfied with being right, you're automatically wrong. Pride goes before destruction. The heart of a man is haughty before a fall. As we seek truth, our heart's attitude ought to be, Lord, you know. I want to know what's right. I want to know what's right and I want to stand for it. And I want to preach it. And I want to be bold. But my heart's attitude needs to be, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Lord, I understand what I can understand. You've helped me understand what I can understand. You're still teaching me. You're still growing me. I'm still developing. But God, there's so much I don't understand. There's so much I don't know about. There's so much I'm not sure about. Lord, you know. That needs to be the attitude of our heart. Complete humbleness. Let's remember that as we continue to talk about this message, as I continue to try to preach here with the Lord's help, as you continue to try to serve Him with His help, these these three dangers of going down a path toward truth, that you're going to be responsible that it's easier to just be legalistic than figure out what's actually right. And then we need to be more interested in truth than feeling right. I felt the need to say all of that as we wrestle with Romans 13 because I don't want this to be 
a thing where we walk away with a certain conclusion and feel self-justified or self-satisfied in that conclusion in feeling right about it. Our fulfillment should come from knowing Jesus. You remember when he told his apostles who they started to glory in the power that he had given them? They cast out demons and stuff. And, he, and that's pretty amazing. And he said, don't glory in that. Glory that your names are written in the book of life. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, if I must needs boast, if I'm going to glory, I'm going to glory in my weakness. Because in my weakness is his strength. So with all of that, we'll take a few more minutes, not a whole lot longer. And I want to resummarize some of the points that we talked about last week because this is important. This Romans 13 and the, and the false application of it is dangerous. And a right understanding of it is necessary for the survival of the truth. I'm not being hyperbolic. A right understanding of what Paul's actually talking about is necessary for the survival of the truth. Last week we talked about authority. Paul talked about submitting yourself to authorities. King James says powers, but it's the same word, exousia, the Greek word. And we discussed what authority even is. You have to start there. What is authority? It's basically the right to do what you please. And the right to make somebody else do what you please. Who has that right? I mean, let's not try to be theological or philosophical. I mean, let's just be practical and real. Who has the right to tell everybody to do whatever he pleases? Unlimited right. Only God has that right. God is the only person with supreme authority in the whole universe. Jesus, when he said, all authority is given to me, he was talking about his father delegating certain authority to him. So the right to, to command other people to do as you please, the ultimate authority, only God has that. I don't. But I have some authority over my own self. I have sovereignty over my own self in, in relationship to my fellow human beings. There are things, we talked about this last week, that are inalienable and self-evident. That God has given me as an individual created in His image that you don't have any right to take away. And He has given you things that I don't have any right to take away. That no government has any right to take away. That no church has any right to take away. No priest, no leader, no... Dictator, nobody has any right to take it away from you. Doesn't mean they won't try and haven't tried throughout history. That's what we're wrestling with. What do you do when that happens? So, authority ultimately is, is God. I mean, He's the only one with supreme authority. He's the only one who has the right to tell everybody to do whatever He wants. And interesting how He exercises His authority. He has the right, literally, to command the whole world to do whatever He wants. If you doubt that, remember that He made the whole world with His voice. With his word. He spoke. And all of this that we see was created. You think he can't command us? 
He said through his prophet that he could raise up dry bones. Jesus taught that he could turn these stones into children that would praise God. God has power. Where does authority come from? We talked about this last week. Authority comes from God. A lot of regimes throughout history, and I know maybe this feels like you're in history class instead of church, but it's necessary because these things aren't being taught anymore. A lot of regimes throughout history assume to themselves illegitimate authority. And I I believe, and as we wrestle with Romans 13, I don't think Paul is talking about blindly submitting yourself to illegitimate authority. We'll, We'll wrestle with that and you can see if you think that that's right. Who is the ultimate authority? God. Authority comes from God. God is the ultimate authority. He's the only one with unlimited supreme authority and power. And I already said this, but say it again. Where did Jesus get his authority from God? Jesus' authority was unprecedented. The people had never seen anything like it. And I want to read Matthew 7.28 again that we investigated last week at length. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, all of what he taught on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes, I'll say it again because it's important, were the very people who by all worldly standards and traditions should have had all the authority. They were the experts. Remember what I said about experts earlier? They were the experts. But when the people saw Jesus speak, they said, this man has more authority than we've ever heard. There was something in him that they identified, even not understanding fully who he was. We're not talking about like church people. We're talking about the masses recognizing this man is different. He has the right somehow. Even though I might not understand it in my mind yet, this man has the right to say what he's saying. And there's a power behind it that's not behind what these scribes say. When he speaks, it does something to me. There's a power behind his words that I've never encountered when I listen to the experts. Brothers and sisters, that's what the church is supposed to be like in the world. Everybody has all their experts and all their philosophies and all their gurus. And when they encounter the body of Jesus Christ here on earth, that's how they should respond. I've been to all the experts, but there's something different about that place, about those people. That preacher preaches with authority that I've never encountered. That's what God meant for us. That's the power He meant for us to have. That we can have through him. We talked also last week about where the Apostle Paul got his authority to preach the gospel. He got it from God and Jesus and he made that clear. And I'm going to read this and maybe close with this so we don't go too long in one day. Galatians chapter 1. I paraphrased some of this last time, but I want to actually read it because this is important. I don't want you to think I'm just making things up. If you want to make notes or read with me. Galatians chapter 1, the first verse, Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is clearly stating that he is an apostle or set apart, called by God, not from man, not by man, but by God and Jesus Christ. He writes his introduction. 
He talks about if anybody preaches an, a different gospel, they should be accursed, ignored, set apart, wrong. Then he goes on and explains in verse, I'll start in 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The same one who wrote Romans 13 and said, Submit yourself to the authorities, said this. Was he talking about blind submission to governments? Could he say both things? No. I mean, listen to what he says. I'm interested in pleasing Christ, not men. If I try to please men instead of Christ, I can't please Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Where did Paul get his authority? Jesus. Not by man, not from man, but from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my conversation or lifestyle in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul is saying, I, basically, I hung out with all the experts. All the experts trained me. And I was becoming an even better expert than them. Here's the difference. When it pleased God, who separated free from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathens, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul's hanging out with the experts, learning from the experts, and then God gets a hold of him. What did Paul do? Did he immediately go find the experts, submit to the experts, ask what the experts thought? No. I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. We saw Peter and James and that's it, fifteen days. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which he once destroyed. Paul is preaching the gospel, called by Jesus, set apart by him. Then 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also and went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. 14 years. Paul goes to the well-known church leaders. 14 years later. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not diminishing the power, or maybe I should say the, the necessity of the Lord's church. But we can take a lesson from this. As God's people, we can also take a lesson from it as citizens living here. Paul submitted himself to God. He was called by Jesus. He was sent out by Jesus. He didn't wait for some religious people 
to condone what he was doing. He did it. Jesus is the authority. He goes up after 14 years. He takes with him somebody to make sure basically that what he's doing is, is what it should be. And then he finds out that these people are trapped in Judaism. They've been truthfully preaching the gospel and then forcing the converts to live like Jews, following the customs of the old law which Jesus fulfilled in him. And the part I quoted last time, I'll read it so there's no confusion. Ninth verse, second chapter. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, or the the rock-solid leaders in the church, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the heathens and they unto the circumcision. (laughs) How'd they make sure they were right? God showed them. God showed them. They could not deny the grace of God upon the, the ministry and the life of Paul and Barnabas. And they said, brothers, go keep doing what you're doing. We'll stay here in Judea and minister to the Jews. You go evangelize the heathen nations like you've been doing for 14 years. 11th verse, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. (laughs) Peter's one of the main church leaders. And Paul did what was right. I mentioned this last time, but I wanted to read these verses so you understand and you could take time to read about it. So let me conclude today's message. Like I said, I don't want to go too long. The Apostle Paul got his authority from Jesus. He preached for 14 years before he ever got sanctioned by a religious group. Uh, the same apostle, and maybe we'll look at this in more detail later, but the same one who said, submit yourself to the authorities, was let down a wall in a basket to get away from the authority, who was going to capture him and force him to stop preaching. I think, this is my summary of this, after last week's message and today's message, I think we would all agree that blind submission to all government authority is not what Romans 13 is talking about. In other words, Paul is not saying, do whatever the government tells you no matter what. That's not what he's saying. Maybe, and I'm going to say this, and then if the Lord continues to work with me in this, I may explain it more. Maybe Romans 13 would be better understood as a general life ethic than an end-all, be-all, absolute command. What do I mean by that? Paul's teachings in Romans 13 can't supersede the commands of God. It can't do away with the lives of the first apostles and disciples who all resisted government authority. That's why they were killed. The government said stop preaching. They said no and kept preaching. So that can't be what Paul means. Either if, If that's what he means, he's the only right one and the rest of all of them are wrong. So that can't be what he means. It can't supersede the command, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Listen, brothers and sisters, we've got a lot of professing Christians today who aren't Christians. They're statists. They don't worship Jesus, they worship the state. That is not what we're called to. And I'm not saying we should be anarchists or anti-everything. That's not what I'm teaching. But when the government, if the government, 
maybe now or later, requires you to do things that are contrary to the law of God, who has greater authority? Who's more important to mind? Jesus gave a commission to preach. The government said, don't preach. Those men kept preaching. Who were they more interested in submitting to? So, look at Romans 13, I think, as more of a life ethic. Like, order is good. God's people aren't supposed to be wild and crazy and just... That's why he specifically enumerated taxes. We should pay taxes. It's respectful. It's it's right. We shouldn't be chaotic and all... I don't think it's right for us to march around all the time trying to overthrow everything. That's not what I'm saying. We should live with a general decent respect toward our leaders. We should pray for them. But there's times when they're wrong. And submitting to God requires that we not go along with it. I think we can prove that with Scripture. Sometimes it seems clear, I think it is clear, that there's times to resist or refuse or escape government authority. Even Jesus did that. He blinded the crowds and walked through it because it wasn't the time for Him to die yet. So here's what maybe we should think about, pray about, and figure out with God's help, and what maybe we'll wrestle with next time if if I continue to be burdened in this way. How does God desire us to behave when we do recognize that the government authority has overstepped its bounds? How should we act then? What what when they are wrong? How should we live? What should it look like? What should we do? If there are times, and I think we would agree, there are times that you can't just do whatever the government says no matter what. There are times that the people of God throughout history have, to His pleasure, resisted the government, submitted to Him instead. If there are times that it's appropriate to do that, how should we do it? That's what I want you to pray about, think about, and like I said, if the Lord continues to burden me in that direction, maybe we'll talk about that next time. How we should live in the world is not... Um, it's called living for a reason. It takes, like, we're not robots. We need the Lord to lead us, guide us, and help us. We can't, it, we're not just mindlessly just doing everything. No, we need God to show us. And I pray that He'll, he'll continue to use these messages to help us with that. Pray for me. I feel like these messages are so important and I feel inadequate. I don't feel equipped or capable to preach what's on my heart. I want you to pray for me as I continue to try to. I need the Lord's help. Pray for you all as you continue to try to understand truth. I'll stop um, for today. I love you all. I hope this was helpful. And... uh, Try to do my best next time as well.